0: This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. As the kids are making their way to their class, I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, this will be our sermon text today. And after we read Malachi 3, we will turn to Luke chapter 3. So Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, one verse in chapter 2, and then we'll read five verses of chapter 3. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, hear now the word of the Lord. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And now Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 2. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In verse 15, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire.
1: Good morning, First Prez. Morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning. And if you have your um, Bible open there to Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 17 and on to chapter 3, that'll be helpful as we walk through uh, this uh, minor prophet as we continue our journey. But just before we do that, let's take a moment and pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, as we gather in this place, um, we gather under your word. We gather under your authority. We gather as a thankful people, recognizing all that you do for us. The very air we breathe, the, the food we eat, the hands in which we are empowered to work with, these are all gifts from you. You are a good and gracious God. And yet, Lord, if we are honest with ourselves, we recognize that we can be a stubborn people. We can be a hard-hearted people, it can be difficult. And so, Lord, we recognize our need of you. We recognize our propensity towards sin and disobedience. And we gather in this place asking you to do your work in us. Oh, Holy Spirit, take the Word of God and prepare us, change us. Make us more and more like our Master, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. God, I pray that you would use my words this morning, Lord, that I wouldn't say anything more nor less than you've given me to say, but God, I do pray that I would be faithful and we as your people pray in this place that we would be changed. We pray this believing you will do even better than we know how to ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, some people drain us, true? Yeah, some people do drain us. A friend of mine once talked about some people and he talked about them as being emotional vampires. I always liked that phrase. People can be emotional vampires. They zap us of our energy. They leave us feeling empty. These people can weary us. Just recently football started and so I've been on the football field working with the offensive linemen and as we've been out there, Uh, We have players who wear us out as coaches. Uh, They come with their persistent words and unnecessary comments or questions again and again and again, and finally you just say, get away from me. Get away from me. Go over there. Get as far away from me as you can, or it's going to be very uncomfortable for you. If you're a football coach, you have that kind of power. You can say, get away from me, or I can make your life miserable. We don't always have that same power over others. People's persistent words can wear us out. We know this even in the home. A persistent parent can wear out a child. A persistent child equally can wear out a parent. In our text this morning, the prophet Malachi points to a people who are wearing out the Lord, who are wearing out the Lord. The people Malachi is talking about. Keep talking, keep flapping their jaws. As you've noticed through this, through this short book, they keep asking questions. How is that possible or why is that? They always have something to say to whatever Malachi corrects them. But more than that, these people are actually making accusations against God. Think about that for a moment. The Creator... Making accusations, or excuse me, creation making accusations against the Creator. The creation making accusations against the Creator. Understand clearly then, this puts the Lord's patience to a test. That's exactly what we see in our text. I would draw your attention to verse 17. Now, I know in your Bibles, you see verse 17 as part of chapter 2. And so our tendency is to assume that it goes with everything that precedes it. But that's not the case. In fact, the ESV version puts a heading, the messenger of the Lord, above verse 17, showing that 2.17 actually belongs with chapter 3. And that's important because what takes place in chapter 2, verse 17, sets up, The rest of chapter 3. Notice Malachi's statement, correction, to the people. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? Notice the answer. Two things. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or... By asking, where is the judgment of God? You weary the Lord with your words, with your accusations. He gives two examples. The first is that notice this, they say that God approves of evil. That's the woos of their words. They're they're making this accusation that God approves evil. The words they say are, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Understand what they're saying. They're saying a holy God can and does look at sinners in the very midst of their sin, and he delights in them. Friends, this is the very opposite of what Scripture says. Their wording is misrepresenting God. See, this covenant people looked around, and based upon their own experiences, they came to some conclusions. I like what one commentator calls their conclusions, he calls them blasphemous conclusions. Their conclusions are blasphemous, their assumptions of God are wrong, blatantly wrong, sinfully wrong, as they misrepresent God. So it makes sense. That Malachi would say, You weary God. You weary God. Church, this morning, as you sit in your pew, and we have the delight of air conditioning and comfort, ask yourself some very important questions. How am I wearying God? Is it through my words? Is it through my thoughts? Is it through my actions? How do I weary God? How do I offend God? This is an important question for each of us to wrestle with this morning. Malachi, in the sense, isn't just putting his finger in the chest of those who lived in the past, but even us who live here now, today, how have we wearied God? See, the problem was this covenant people looked around, and based upon their own experiences, they came to some very wrong conclusions. They understood that they were living in the last days, or at least that's how they understood it. After all, they, the remnant had returned to the promised land. Therefore, they made a big jump and assumed that meant that the Messiah was to come. And if the Messiah was to come, that meant that there would be judgment for the enemy of the Lord. But here they sat in the promised land ruled by Gentiles. Here they sat in the promised land that was supposed to be paradise, but was woefully impacted by drought and pestilence things were not like they were supposed to be and so judah begins to make assumptions about god that god is not holy that he doesn't deal with sin that god is not just see the problem was judah and their experience was in trouble politically Judah, in their experience, was in trouble economically. Judah, in their experience, was really in trouble spiritually. How much does that speak to our circumstance today? Problems politically, problems economically, but the problems are spiritual. And in doing so, they began to whine. They began to cry out. They began to make accusations of God, saying that God is not busy doing what he's supposed to be doing, which is judging the nations. No, he seems to endorse them. He seems to expand their kingdom. He seems to take care of them. Well, we, his righteous people, suffer. Where is the justice, they ask. That's their second question. Where's the justice? The real problem was God was not acting as they expected him. God was not meeting them in their timing. God was not meeting them as that they wanted him to meet them. And therefore, they demanded justice. They demanded at least their version or their understanding of justice. See, their version of justice was wrong. Their version of justice included only the sins of the nations. Their version of justice was that God would go get them. That God would deal with them, all the while missing their own sins as the people of the Lord. They didn't see their own sins. They didn't recognize their own faults. They were busy at looking at everyone else's sins. Church, this is a sharp warning that we should be careful in asking for judgment. We should be careful in asking for judgment. For do we truly understand what the judgment of the Lord means for our sins? How often we act like this remnant. We seek to assume the seat above God. We begin to judge God based upon the actions or his lack of actions in our understanding. We begin to think that God is to do our beck and our call. We weary the Lord. We weary the Lord. See, this limited, self-absorbed perspective wearies the Lord. Yet even here, as we're told that they weary the Lord, look at their response. How have we wearied the Lord? What boldness! What pride! Rather than receiving the correction and saying, we're sorry, we, we shouldn't have done that. Rather than being humble and recognizing that they are the creation... Rather than the Creator, they boldly come with an accusation saying, Prove it! Give me an example! What do you mean? We've all been around that person before. When we've pointed out a flaw or a a fault, and all of a sudden they want chapter and verse. They want experience to, to show us exactly how this has occurred. This is the case of those who've been corrected by Malachi. How have we wearied the Lord? How have we wearied him? In what way? What boldness. What wrongful boldness to come at God in such tone. We see this as a picture in many portions of Scripture where people ask God what's up. We see it in the psalmist. God, where are you? God, what are you up to? We see it especially in the book of Job. Where Job was a man who is described as righteous and things were taken away from him. He begins to ask questions. We remember how God responded to Job. In Job chapter 38, verse 4, God's response says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? God's saying, Were you eternal? Are you sovereign? Do you know who you are? In fact, he goes on in verse 4 to say, tell me if you have understanding to show Job's finiteness. No, you don't understand. Who are you to question me? What's amazing about that is we're told, again, that Job was righteous. And Job was one who was pursuing the Lord. And yet he questioned the Lord and he was corrected. How much more so for these wicked People who return, who are blasphemous against the Lord in His name. How dare they question His authority and His plan? How much worse is it for them? Yet we see as we move into chapter 3 that the Lord does set the record straight. The Lord wants to make clear His path. He's not going to go on allowing them to misconstrue who he is and what he's about. His word speaks. Same is true for us today that when we hear people say things about God and we begin to question those things, we should always go back to what does God's word really say? Not just what people say, but what does God's word really say? We're here, Malachi gives them what the word of the Lord is. So in the form of a prophecy, we read in verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. What you need to know is that there's two messengers mentioned in this text. In verse 1 of chapter 3, there's not just one, but two messengers. First, the forerunner the one who would go before. The idea of a messenger there was one who prepares the way for a king. We see this all through the Old Testament. As kings would enter cities, they would send a forerunner who would prepare the way to remove the obstacles so that the people's hearts would be prepared to worship and venerate their leader. Here the Lord, we're told, will send a messenger who goes to prepare the way, a forerunner. Interesting enough... Malachi's name means messenger of God. It's believed by some commentators that Malachi may have believed that he was that messenger. After all, it makes sense. He was giving a very clear message to the people of their need to repent. He was calling them back to the Lord in preparation for what the Lord would do. In fact, after we get the words of Malachi, just here in three short chapters, guess what? As you turn, four short chapters, as you turn the page, you quickly discover that there's 400 silent years. Malachi, in many ways, seems to be the last prophet to speak. Maybe he truly was the forerunner to the Messiah. But after those 400 silent years, we're told that there is one named John. Mark chapter 1, verses 4-8 says this about John. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for their forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Notice what they're doing. Confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan. Notice what John wears. Verse 6 says, John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate Locust and wild honey, very much looking like the prophet Elijah. In verse 7, his message consisted of this He said, After me comes the one who's more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John seems to be ushering in and preparing the people for a new age, the new covenant promise. In John chapter 1, verse 29, we're told what John does when he sees Jesus. It says, the next day he, John, saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist seems to recognize Jesus as the promised messiah yet interesting enough when john was taken as a prisoner in herod's prison as john had time to reflect questions began to pile up in john's mind matthew chapter 11 verses 2 through 6 tell us about john's experience in prison listen to what we're told now when john heard in prison about the deeds of christ He sent word by his disciples. And he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's an important point that. Here was this man who was to be the forerunner, raised up, the one who was able to point at Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God. But when he was put in a difficult situation, prison, questions began to stir. Friends, this is a comfort to all of us as we wrestle in our faith. It's an encouragement to know that men like Job and men like John the Baptist wrestle when circumstances arise. There's no reason to doubt our salvation or to fear that we may not be one of the elect if we truly are resting in the hands of God. Simple questions do come when tragedy strikes and difficulty comes, but it's really a matter of our heart. Our heart says a lot about us. And when John the Baptist was corrected, we're never told that he questions again. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus taking the time to address the needs of his people. And yet, we're told of another messenger. The prophecy isn't just simply about the forerunner, the prophecy is specifically about the messenger of the covenant. We're told in verse 1 it's the Lord whom you seek. I like what one commentator did with this. He said, it wasn't the Lord whom you seek, it's the Lord you profess to seek because these people were hard-hearted. They said they wanted the Messiah, but really they only wanted a Messiah who would do their becking call and their will. Church is at you this morning. You're not satisfied with the Jesus of Scripture. You would rather have a political Jesus. You would rather have an economic Jesus. You would rather have a Jesus who meets your desires friends it's important that we meet god on his terms notice the timing of his coming according to verse one it says he will come suddenly it goes on to say in verse two who can endure the day of his coming there's a description of that day as it talks about the refiner's fire and it talks about the the fuller's soap the idea here is that, that he sits, this, this messenger of the covenant sits and refines and purifies the silver. He purifies gold. He removes the dross. He removes the imperfections. And he's going to do this, we're told, even in the sons of Levi. For what purpose? So that their worship and their offerings would be acceptable. Is it not why Jesus has come, but to make our worship and offerings acceptable. The purpose of His coming, of course, is to draw near for judgment. That's what He ultimately tells them. I come near for judgment. In verse 5, He goes on to say, I will be a swift witness against. He will be a witness against the sinners, the sorcerers, the adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired workers, those who oppress the widow and the fatherless, those who thrust aside the sojourner those who ultimately don't fear me. When he mentions these sins, he's talking about sins that bring death. Notice there's all kinds of sins described here and there's all kinds of people described here, but ultimately, sin brings death. And we're reminded in our text that this messenger of the covenant, this promised one, he comes as a witness and as a judge. There's no hiding from him. All of our sins will be exposed. He will know us completely and perfectly. And ultimately, we're reminded of the phrase, you don't fear me. You don't reverence me. You don't honor me. See, it's a matter of the heart as he points to the people of his day who, yes, went about their worship, but were far from God. The coming of the Messiah, we're told, happens in two halves, the first coming he comes humbly. He comes with the purpose of salvation. He comes in the form of a baby. He comes to, f- to poor parents. He comes obeying the law. He comes to go to a cross that He did not deserve, but we did to save us. But understand, this text also teaches of a second coming. A coming when He comes with vengeance to judge. Jesus comes as the exalted one. He comes with his army. He comes to judge his enemies. If you've never read Revelation 20, spend some time this afternoon experiencing what is described there as the wrath of God poured out. See, church, the question for each of us is this. Are we those who repent and believe? Or are we those who are unrepentant? Are you wearying the Lord? Or are you fearing him? That's the question that Malachi asks his people of his day. Are you wearing the Lord with your accusations and your expectations? Or are you fearing him, submitting to him, living for him? Interesting enough, this message was given to children of the covenant. See, being born under the covenant still means we need to repent and we need to believe. The question is, in fact, are we repenting? Are we believing? We don't need simply to do better or try harder. No, the text is clear. We need the messenger of the covenant. And he has come. But church, hear this. He comes again. His first coming, he came humbly as a servant to die. His second coming, he comes as a judge, the victorious one. To rule the world. Let's pray.
0: This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.